So we are in the midst of talking about God's amazing justice that he teaches about in Romans 3 and 5, 4 and 5. And here moving into Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, what we find here is a passage giving us the implications for us who know Christ as our Savior, the implications of God's amazing justice. And his amazing justice is in the fact that he justifies the ungodly, that he declares the ungodly righteous through the righteousness of his son. That when a person recognizes that Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead, that our sins were laid on him and his righteousness is able to be laid on us. And God, the righteous judge, in an amazing act of justice, justly declares us righteous because our sins were laid on Christ and his righteousness is given to us. And so we learned about this through the person of Abraham and David, and, and what we saw in that is that it has always been about God's amazing grace being received by us through faith. And we ended Romans 4 with these verses, but the words, it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham's being declared righteous, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so that brings us to Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, which we will look at over the course of this week and next. And it begins by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so here we have a turning of the corner here between talking about the legal possibility that God's amazing justice could be carried out and end up declaring the unrighteous righteous. And, and the assumption here in Romans 5 is he's speaking to someone who has received that gift of righteousness from God and has become his child. So he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he goes on to explain that statement. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even 
would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In general, we have a hard time maintaining healthy relationships, right? We have a hard time maintaining healthy relationships. I want what I want. You want what you want, okay? As Paul Tripp said one time, we all want to drive on roads that are perfectly paved that nobody else drives on and somebody else paid for. Paul reminds us in Galatians of the fact, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And then he goes on and gives us the answer, but I say walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, the desires of the flesh, what we're just born into makes us want what we want. We want comfort, we want pleasure, we want what we want and it gets in the way of healthy relationships I can remember uh, hearing on talk radio years ago and I think it might play every now and then sometimes advertisements for the total transformation toolkit right and ask the question like are you tired of back talk from your child are you tired of disobedience and disrespect well, buy my kit, and within 60 days, you can turn this around or your money back. And I, I don't know what goes into that. I can only assume. But I can guarantee you, it's not a total transformation. I can guarantee you, it probably somehow takes what one person, in this case, the child, what they want, and it says, hey, this back talk, this disobedience, that's not going to get you what you want. Actually, this is how you're going to get what you want. So behave that way. But it's not a total transformation because it doesn't transform what they want. And isn't that where we find ourselves so often? Is fighting against our very own hearts. Fighting against what we want. And what we'll see in Romans 6 is that our hearts are like a rudder. You can try to move a ship in a different direction that its rudder is pointed in, but you'll be unsuccessful. But God offers total transformation, and, and this gate we're moving through in Romans 5 allows us to see that that total transformation starts in our relationship with Him. That through Christ, our relationship with Him is totally transformed. 
It's transformed from wrath and hostility and being enemies with each other to peace and standing in grace constantly. It's transformed into hope that God will finish what he started, but also hope in his return rather than fearing his wrath. It's transformed from selfishness and now focus to joyful, eternal focus, even joy in our sufferings. It's transformed from a heart or a mind that says, God, why would you let this be happening to me? Where are you? To rejoicing in our sufferings. That's total transformation. Here's a fact here. When we are declared righteous by God through Jesus Christ, our relationship with God is totally transformed. And that's what I want you to get this morning. We've heard a lot recently about America's relationship with Cuba and how it's becoming normalized. Okay, and that means flights will happen more often and there'll be some economic working and things like that. But most of us, when we see that, we say there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, living in America, we say there's a lot of work to be done in Cuba. And there is. But it's a far cry from a relationship that is because of transformation on both parts. God transforms us. He doesn't normalize relationships with us. He transforms our relationship with him. And the first way that we see that is what's described here as peace in the present. Peace in the present. We're told, since we have been justified by faith, and the therefore there, therefore since we've been justified by faith, obviously is saying, all of what I've been saying infers this. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's established that salvation and justification comes through Christ, and it has always been so. And now he's unpacking what that means in our relationship with God. This is beyond being forgiven of sin. It's being welcomed into relationship. It's present peace regarding past guilt. Because as we've established, it was all laid on Christ. Everything that we would be guilty for. Now this is not necessarily talking about a peace this peace with God, not necessarily talking about God's presence is here and when I'm with God, I have peace. It's not necessarily just talking about a tranquility or a calmness. This is talking about an end of hostility on both sides. It's about peace between us and God. And we'll, we'll unpack this more in chapter 7 of Romans. 
If you recall, right from the start, the gospel is not only good news, but there's news of God's wrath in the gospel. We unpacked this over from what I feel like was, was kind of um, painstaking weeks of the case for man's condemnation. We have peace in the presence, not wrath of God. Recall that God's wrath is response in response to the ignoring of His glory that we started looking at in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, where we read, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That God has reason to be wrathful in response to the ignoring of His truth. We also looked at the fact that there's such a tragedy in in, in our unsaved condition and the tragedy is in what we trade separated from God. We read about in 121 through 23, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy Creeping, uh, creepy, yeah. Creeping things. The tragedy of man is in what he trades. And there's wrath because of it. Also, we see that we saw in Romans 1 that God's judgment is deeper sin. We read about the progression and the continuation. Starting in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. It's like Hansel and Gretel, right? Thinking that they can travel down this path just dropping breadcrumbs along the way. We can get back. We can return. God's wrath is is presently letting mankind become more and more deeply lost. No one knows which bathroom is safe to go to. There's a lady that gets her membership revoked from from Planet Fitness because she complained about the man that was changing in the women's bathroom. And she gets her membership revoked. Just understand that our culture is proving what God said. That he will let them go into the futility of their mind, into further and further sexual sin until identity is unraveled. This also leads to peace because between us and God that changes us from being His enemies, not enemies with God but peace in the present. You know, from the very start of our existence, mankind aligned himself with God's enemy when we chose to sin. We're told this later on in chapter 5. 
In verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. But understand something. We're not in our unsaved condition. We're not just enemies It's not just that we are God's, we are enemies of God. He is our enemy. I I was watching kind of a kung fu sci-fi movie recently, right? And there's a really powerful guy. And he had, you could tell he was powerful because all he had to do was move his hands like this. And all of a sudden, you know, some of you guys know what's about to happen here, right? There's a ball of fire that's going to come up right between his hands here, right? I mean, that's powerful. You know, and pretty soon he's going to build it, build it, and he's going to launch it at somebody, right? Well, I mean, how much more powerful would he be if he could sit there like all day doing this thing and he would create something so powerful, as big as the sun? And now you're like, okay, J.D., you're like unrealistic now. But what if? I mean, how powerful would that be to get a fireball the size of the sun coming out of a person's hands, moving them. All he has to do is just move them like this all day long. All of the suns, all of the stars of over 50 billion galaxies were created when God said for them to be. When he spoke a word I mean, we see the guy sitting there moving like this, you know, building a fireball in his, you know, and we're like, I hope he's on my side, right? When we don't know Christ as our Savior, if we have not been declared righteous before God, our enemy is the one who spoke every star into existence. We're nuts. Sin makes us crazy. It's not just that we were his enemy. He was our enemy. And there's also a future sense to this passage here and a relationship to God's wrath here. Then that unless we have peace with God, we would not hope in his coming. We're set free from fearing his presence, the presence that we enjoy when he returns turns to judge the world. Remember what it says later in Romans 5, in verse 9. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's a sense here in this passage of, don't worry, you have peace between you and God. And there's a sense here, that's where it ties into hope. I was driving to um, Indianapolis with Kelly on Thursday, and um, man, some rain came through, and I don't know if any of you guys were on the road at that time, right over Indianapolis, full rainbow, side to side. I mean, the whole way to Fishers, we were just driving toward this rainbow. I was like watching for other people, because I was expecting people to be stupid on the road, just staring at this rainbow. And, I, and, and we talked a little bit about Genesis 9, where after God 
destroyed the whole earth with a flood and out of his grace saved eight people. It says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. You know, God's got this relationship of, okay, this is my promise. You're not going to experience my wrath in this way. But then we're told in First Peter, our Second Peter 3, in answer to the question of the scoffers, where is this God you're always talking about? Peter writes, They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In other words, God flooded the earth. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up not for water, but for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Understand that there is supposed to be a sense with this passage of that our relationship has been transformed, that we no longer have to fear God's wrath as his enemies. We have peace with him. Are you at peace with God? The way that you become at peace with God is simply this, recognizing that you can't be on your own because no sin can stand before a righteous God. Not just that, but at our hearts, we don't want to be there. But that division between us and God because of our sin was removed when our sins were laid on Christ. He died our death because the wages of sin is death, but we're told the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. In other words, it's simply a matter of saying, Christ, I believe that you took my sins upon yourself. God, I believe that you paid for my sins through the sacrifice of your son. I believe that he rose from the dead. Will you give me his righteousness so that I can live in relationship with you? Will you change me from your enemy to your child? And from that point forward, as Scripture tells us, to as many as receive Christ, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. And we are eternally his. Understand, the devil helped us to destroy our original peace with God through doubt and through sin. And that's the way that as believers, we negate our peace with him today. I don't mean that we destroy the transformation of that relationship, but we negate the present real-time experience of living out of that peace We become opposed to his plan, opposed to his purposes in our lives. We become under his discipline even, his loving discipline, the way a father lovingly disciplines his child. 
There's a difference between living within the borders of the kingdom that's ruled by a king and being all about his kingdom. We're called to be all about God's kingdom, extending his gospel, extending his love, extending his grace, extending his truth all over his kingdom, even bringing his truth into the lane place to worship him, to allow other people to worship him. He has made us to be at peace with him so that we might be about his kingdom. Trust this, sin, unignored, undealt with sin, causes us to live as if we're not at peace with him, as if we have to go hiding from him again. Don't you love the TV commercials where it's like they said, you get this and you get this and only for this, you know, and then all of a sudden it's, but wait, there's more. There's more to this here too. That's what he means where he says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's a grace that's persistent. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, the term access can be kind of odd. If you can be given a key, and you've been given, in a sense, you've been given access, right? You know, you go to a hotel, you check in, and they're like, okay, this is your room, this is your key. Now you officially have access to that room. That's not the idea of what's being described here. It's better termed that we have been given introduction. And some of your Bibles say that. This introduction into this grace by faith. Literally, it's saying through Christ we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we have taken our stand. Introduction in the sense of like Christ bringing us to the Father and saying, Father, I want to introduce you to my friend. And God the Father looking at us in his, the throne room of God. I don't understand. Christ is there. Christ is here. He's in God. He's the Father. Okay, we're, with, we're together here. But Christ is introducing us to the Father. We have an introduction to God. And God says, any friend of my son is a friend of mine. So it's an introduction into relationship a relationship of grace in which we stand. And first of all, it's not conditional. We learned back in chapter 4 from the relationship with Abraham that God's grace is always his unmerited favor and received through faith, not by works. Romans 4.16 told us, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 starts to kind of unpack this idea. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, meaning through Christ, as talked about in Romans 5, through receiving Christ as our Savior. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to list some of these in the next 10 verses. We have redemption, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? In other words, we are locked up, secure in that relationship. That introduction is into a relationship that we can never lose and that we always have with us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul prays and yearns and aches that Christians might know what we've been introduced into in 18 through 19 of Ephesians 1. He says, I ask that you would know, I pray, I yearn, I long that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? These are all wrapped up in a grace relationship with God. If we aren't getting all that he has for us, it's not because he's not giving it. We're not paying attention. We've got our eyes on something else. We've got an idol in front of us. Or we're trying to grow in him and maintain this sin that we love so much. It's not because he's not giving it. It's because we're not paying attention to it. It's not only unconditional, it's not occasional. He talks about this grace in which we stand. It's not simply an elevated position of a guest. It's not even a backdoor guest. It's a resident, a citizen of heaven. One writer says, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. The perfect tense here, describing the grammar here, expresses this. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us is not sporadic, but continuous, not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like members of a king's court who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign. No, we stand in it, for that is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Standing in God's grace can seem like standing in a bathtub or maybe like a kid. I'm standing in the safety zone. You can't get to me. But we're described, it's, go back at Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. It's described to us as, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, overabundance of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's not like standing in a puddle or even standing in a pond. It's like standing in a shower. You ever gone to one of those water parks where in the kids area they've got this huge bucket up at the top 
you know, and it's filling up, and as it fills up, it starts to tip a little bit, and maybe a little bell starts to go off, and all the little kids start running under there, and the dads are grabbing their kids and holding them under it, and it's just going to be this huge pouring out of thousands, maybe, of gallons of water, knocking kids over. That's the picture that we stand in, a constant flow of richly lavishing us with his grace. There's nothing you've done, thought, or said that that doesn't take care of. There's nothing that someone else has done, thought, or said to you that it couldn't take care of for them either. And holding it against them only causes you to misunderstand grace. Live in his grace. Enjoy his grace. Don't doubt his grace. He said so much so that you will truly believe the overwhelming flood of his grace. Take what you've done recently that you're so ashamed of And stand boldly before him in his grace. And be free to say, I don't deserve to be here, but I'm here through Christ. And I'm your child and you're my father. And you love me despite my sin and you want to help me. And you have invited me to climb into your lap and be loved by you no matter what I've done. That's the truth. And that's what it means to, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That we may find, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The rest assured something about sin. Let me read for you the fine print of temptation. The more you willfully sin, the less likely you are to believe what I've just told you. The more you willfully sin, the less likely you are to believe what I've just told you. To have all that grace, to have all that relationship, to have all that access, and to give our will over to sin is to give our mind over to the hater, the liar, the destroyer of souls. And he'll keep us from enjoying that grace. And who on earth likes to wait? Right? Waiting in line is like horrible. It's, you know, we... Thankfully, we have computers in our pockets that we can sit here and do something, make use of it. Understand, God transforms our relationship with him, giving us hope that we should rejoice in. That's transformation, rejoicing in waiting, building a hope, rejoicing in a hope 
We're to be transformed into hope that rejoices. That's what he means when he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. To rejoice, the New American Standard says, to exult in hope. The, New Mar- the NIV talks about boasting in hope. Hope looks expectantly to the future presence of God's glory. Everything is leading to a full expression of His glory in the eternity that God that God will spend with his children in what uh, Revelation calls the new Jerusalem. And it describes something there. It describes in Revelation 21, 23, this city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. The glory of God in the eternal state in the new Jerusalem would be like, I'm gonna sit down and read something. I'm going to go into this closet and I'm going to shut the door and I don't have to turn on a light because God's glory is there and it, and it makes it so that I can see plain as day. This is why I was listening to John Piper this past week and he talks about this is why finite beings, us finite beings, require eternity to unpack our relationship with the infinite God. Us as finite beings will require an eternity to unpack relationship with the infinite God, meaning he has no boundaries and his glory will have no boundaries. It's only because we have peace with God, though, and stand under his flow of grace that we look at his glory, the coming of his glory with hope. Remember what we were talking about? Because the book of Revelation also tells us that when when Christ appears, that those who opposed him will weep and wail because their enemy is coming to reign. But when we stand, when we have peace with him and we stand in his grace, the flow of his grace, we hope in his glory. We hope in his presence. And what it looks like right now is a hope not in our glory, but in his glory. Not in our glory, but in his glory. God's glory is revealed in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And back at Romans 1.20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. His glory is present. But the fact is, because of sin, man, we want to exalt ourselves rather than him. We want to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We want to reason God out of everything. And this is what naturalistic science is trying to do. 
elevate man by reasoning God away. This is what humanism does. It elevates man and says everything is about us. Creation was spoken. Understand this. The relationship between God's glory and his word. Creation was spoken by his word. God's glory is revealed first in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 4 tells us, in their case, meaning talking about those that do not believe in Christ, in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ. This is why Scripture calls someone coming to Christ as dying to themselves and living, coming alive to God. They've got to die to the fact that they, their mindset is, I am after my own glory, not this gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is also spoken truth about his son, the word. So creation was spoken into existence by his word. The gospel is, and, and it is the, the expression of his glory. The gospel itself, the word spoken of his truth, is the glory of Christ. Jesus himself was called the word, and God's glory is revealed in his written word. Let me give you one simple example. Isaiah 48, 11 makes it really clear something about the glory of God, and that's that he doesn't share it. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it, God says. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The word of God reveals the glory of God. Are you in his word? You have got to be in his word daily. Or you will not look with hope to the glory of God. God's truth exalts God and helps us to hope in his glory. Without his word, you will make life about you. His word tells us it's not about us. It's about him. And this leads easily into the idea that our being transformed to rejoicing in God's glory changes our view of suffering. It's not in our ease, but in our sufferings that hope rejoices. For followers of Christ, life is about far more than pursuing pleasure and staying away from pain. God transforms suffering into a gift. A gift that produces hope in the glory of God. Romans 8.18 says, Paul writes, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If we don't have eyes on his glory, 
we will dread suffering. We will fight suffering. We will kick and scream to get out of suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.17 tells us this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering is always about preparing us for great glory in God. If we're thinking about life, if our thinking about life is about anything other than glorifying God, we will not hope in our sufferings. Certainly we will think like, like an unsaved person does that God is supposed to serve us. And we'll doubt his love or we'll doubt his power when suffering comes along, right? The big question, why would a powerful, all-loving God allow suffering? Because this is not our home. But if people don't know that, they don't understand that. Next week, we're going to get into the mechanics of this, of how suffering brings us hope in the glory of God. For today, I want to share with you a simple picture, and it's kind of odd here. This was shared at our um, shepherd, uh, servant team meeting. It's Mel Gibson who was directing uh, The Passion of the Christ and Jim Caviezel who portrayed Christ in the movie having a conversation on set there. And, and I want to kind of leave you with this picture when it comes to talking with God about suffering. And I don't mean this to say your suffering doesn't compare. Okay, but we're told in Hebrews 12 too that we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For Jesus, it was the joy of the glory of God that his sacrifice would bring. That as we're told, for that joy set before him, he endured the cross. And when we talk with him about suffering, there's nothing he does not get. There's nothing that he does not understand. There's nothing that he does not comprehend from our experience. And he went through as much so that he could be our perfect high priest and identify with us. We're called to look to him as our example. And when we find ourselves suffering in any way, to talk with him about it. My prayer for you is that you will discover the transformed relationship you have with God this week. And on discovering it, you will find it deeper and deeper and deeper as we're reminded there's no way that we will ever plumb the full height and depth and length and width of the love of Christ. And it's in suffering that we find it there. I pray that you will see your relationship as being transformed from enemy to being at peace, from condemnation to constant flow of grace, and from scraping for your plans and your glory to hope in his glory, even amidst suffering.
I'm going to close in prayer. And I just want to tell you, during our, our closing time of worship, um, there will be men available up front. If you're sitting here saying, I am not at peace with God. I need that peace. I need that flow of grace. That flow of grace can start today. And one of these men would be happy to share that with you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for sharing yourself with us. Thank you for sharing yourself with us in such an abundant and sufficient and rock-solid way that lasts for eternity. Thank you, Lord God, that in knowing Christ as our Savior, we have no need to be in fear. Your perfect love casts out all fear. Lord, thank you for the transformation that's taken place in our relationship with you and knowing Christ as our Savior. And I pray, Lord God, that we would lean on that this week. I pray, Lord God, that you would keep us from sin because sin makes us stupid. Causes us to miss out all that we've been given in you. Lord, have our full focus, I pray. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.